our emotions are complex. And, you know, I, I continue to be surprised at how complex they are. You think you'd get to some point in life where you just sort of accept that? Like, yeah, like this is hard to understand how we feel sometimes. But I, I continue to find myself surprised by that. Um, I find that it's hard to understand my own emotions kind of real time. Um, Sometimes even after the fact, when you look back on something you've experienced, it's hard to understand why you felt the way you felt. We misunderstand each other. Um, And so our emotions are constantly something we're having to grapple with. Uh, Some emotional ranges, I think, are kind of straightforward. We can kind of understand them conceptually, like angry, I know what that is. You know, sadness, I know what that is. You know, jealousy, those kinds of things. But there are these other groups of emotions, I find, that are a little bit more complex than that. They're kind of a mixture of different emotions that can even seem in conflict with each other. So, for example, nostalgia. I think nostalgia is kind of one of those uh, mixed, multifaceted uh, emotional ranges. It's a mix of, like, joy, but also sadness, also longing, also gratitude. Um, Nostalgia is the reason why the moment I began to disassemble my son Luke's crib, I just burst into tears. (laughs) I had no idea it was coming. But it was that moment of like, uh, so sad that this is what this represents, but so joyful. And and it just kind of overwhelmed me. And I think another emotional set like that um, is this. We're going to talk about this a little bit today, is disillusionment. I think disillusionment is one of those types of emotions that is a mixture uh, of a variety of emotions. It's a potent mingling of frustration, anger, confusion, disappointment, sometimes cynicism. I was looking up um, some different definitions of disillusionment this week, and um, I thought Merriam-Webster really kind of hit it. it uh, they said um, disillusionment is having lost faith or trust in something, or disappointment that something is not as good or valuable or true as it seemed. I thought that really hit the nail on the head. Disillusionment. You know, I think there's all kinds of reasons we feel disillusioned about things. We can experience family disillusionment when a relationship is broken or strained, and you're just like, why is this happening? Um, Friend relationships as well. We can become disillusioned in our jobs if if we thought it was going to be great, but then it's this unhealthy environment or something like that. Um, in politics, you can certainly get disillusioned. I think we're at a, a moment right now in our country that is uh, just full of disillusionment, kind of across the spectrum. Um, spiritually disillusioned, people feel that way. Um, I've gone through seasons like that where it's like you feel like you're doing the right things, you feel like you're trying to grow, and yet you don't see a lot of change in your life, or you feel like something is just sort of beyond your reach, and and, and you can just feel a little disillusioned with the process of even trying to grow spiritually. Financial disillusionment, you feel like you're just not making progress, you're working hard, not, you know, you're not getting ahead. Um, I think a lot of people in this city feel that way, particularly in the last year because of the effects of Hurricane Harvey and other things. Um, and if we're honest, we can be easily disillusioned in the church. We can feel very let down by the church, by other Christians. And we think it's not supposed to be that way, is it? But we have to contend with this, and and part of what makes it more confusing when we're dealing with feelings of disillusionment is there's this seemingly believable idea that's just kind of in the air, it's around us all the time, this idea that the observable circumstances of our life are an accurate representation of how God feels about us. 
You know, we just kind of look at the circumstances and we think we can figure out what God's up to and what he thinks. And so in a high point in life, things are going great. Well, God loves us. He loves me. He's close to me. He's happy with me. Look how great things are going. And then the reverse is true. If we're at a low point or we're suffering, it's like, well, God must not love me that much or he must, you know, be disappointed or he's kind of wandered away from me. And so we find ourselves feeling kind of like we're maybe like one wrong step away from God, like abandoning us or pulling away or not blessing us anymore. We can, we can begin thinking that and as a result become disillusioned with God and his plans. And, and we just wrestle with these things. And it, it leads us to this question, this fundamental question that we're going to talk about today. And um, it's an honest question. I don't think it's asked overtly in church very often, but it's really important. And this is the question. Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? It's a critical question to ask. Um, Because if we're honest, we have moments and sometimes seasons where we wonder and struggle with this. And if we don't maybe personally find ourselves struggling with this question, uh, there are people all around us who wrestle with this question in a variety of ways. Um, And God may have placed you in somebody's life to help them wrestle with this question. Some of you sitting here right here today don't know if you don't know this answer. You don't know. Can God be trusted? I have had moments where I felt that way too. Um, Can God be trusted? You know, some of you might trust him in the sense of, I believe he's God and I believe, you know, Jesus has saved me and I'm going to heaven, but yet you have not really uh, entrusted your life to him in the day-to-day sense. You're still grasping on to control or searching for control to give you a sense of stability. So today we're going to wrap up this series. We've been in all summer uh, on the Minor Prophets by looking at Malachi. Malachi is going to help us think about this question. Can God be trusted? Spoiler alert, yes. <laughs> but we're going to explore why. Why that's the answer. So if you brought your Bible, open up to Malachi. It is the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi. Um, we will have it on the uh, screens as we always do. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, we have some on tables. We'd be happy for you to take one of those with you. And that would be our gift to you. Um, and I'll, as I usually do, make note of some things that would be worth highlighting and underlining, that sort of thing. Um, so Malachi was written um, after the time of exile. We've talked about this a little bit the last several weeks, how uh, Israel had been exiled from the promised land. They'd been conquered, and they were, they were no longer in the land. And they were now coming back into the promised land, Israel, where they had lived. And they're in a season of rebuilding. God had allowed them to be driven out of the promised land because of their idolatry, their unfaithfulness to him. He'd warned them about this for centuries. And then they were exiled by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And now they're being allowed to return back um, to rebuild their cities, uh, the temple, and really revive their relationship with God. Um, And there was widespread disillusionment in this season uh, of history um, among God's people. They were in a city that had been destroyed, and they're trying to rebuild it. They're rebuilding the temple, but it's just a shadow of its former glory. It's depressing. Uh, They have these neighbors within Israel who are antagonistic to them um, because when Israel was exiled out, other people were settled while they were gone, and when the Israelites came back, they were not a fan of the fact that Israel was coming back. In fact, that other group 
um, was known as the Samaritans. That's where that antagonism came from between the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, so there's all this disillusionment, all this struggle and social tension, and, and they're just kind of, you know, disillusioned. Like, God, are you going to save us? Like, are we going to be oppressed forever by all these people surrounding us? And God, are you going to rescue us? And Malachi is speaking into this moment when there's a lot of distrust of, of what God's up to. It's the mid-400s B.C. is when Malachi lived, and Malachi is going to remind the people that God's there, uh, and in spite of all their unfaithfulness to him, in spite of all their feelings of disillusionment, God loves them. He is trustworthy. He is the maker of covenants and the keeper of promises. And he has plans for their future they could never imagine. And so Malachi is going to begin to speak about that. So let's get into it. Malachi 1, 1. It says this. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Highlight those two things there if you're taking notes. I've loved you, and how have you loved us? This is dialogue happening. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated, and I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Okay, so there's a lot there. I'm going to explain what he means by that. But first of all, I just want to Uh, make note of the fact that um, it's kind of a dialogue. The format of Malachi's prophecy is a dialogue between God and his people. So that's what I had you highlight. God is saying, I've loved you. And the people God is saying in kind of this imaginary dialogue are saying, how have you loved us? You know, prove it. That's kind of the discussion that's happening. And um, I think Israel sounds a lot like us. You know, the passages like this in the Old Testament, I go, wow, that sounds modern, doesn't it? God loves you. Really? I don't feel it. That's what his people are saying, you know, and you may have experienced that. People tell you God loves you, and maybe you even read it in Scripture. Yeah, look, God loves me, but you don't feel it on that heart level, and that's what they were feeling, and so God's going to address those feelings they're having, and what he does is he picks just one example of many he could have cited. He picks one example to remind them of how he's taken care of them all these generations, and he, he talks about the Edomites, and so He's talking about Jacob and Esau, and really those in this context are just Israel and Edom, these two nations. And he's basically saying, look at how I took care of the Edomites. And it sounds harsh. You read that and you're like, whoa, God is like laying waste to these people. But if you go back and read what had happened between the Edomites and the Israelites, they were oppressing Israel. And they were the oppressors and God rescued Israel from them. And so God is basically citing this example and saying, you're asking me, you know, how have I loved, do you, have you forgotten everything? Here's one example, the Edomites. I rescued you from that. And so God is basically saying, how, how can you conclude I don't love you? Like, let's look at our history here. And, and so he's beginning this conversation to try to address this feeling of disillusionment that his people had. Um, so skip down now uh, to two, chapter 2, verse 11. We don't have time to go through um, 
all of Malachi, of course, and so I want to kind of follow some of the big pieces of, of the thought here, and this is a, a, a great place to stop. Just a few verses here. Um, God is, is going to elaborate on why their relationship is broken, Israel and his relationship with Israel. And so he says this, verse 11, Judah has been unfaithful. Highlight that if you're taking notes. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. And as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. Highlight that. You ask why. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So um, God is making an argument here. He's saying, you know, you might think I'm distant from you. You're like, God, where have you gone? You might think that I'm not showing up for you. But look at some of the things you've done. You've been committing idolatry. You've been abandoning me for so long, many, many years. One of the ways you've done that is you literally abandoned, these Israelite men would like abandon their wives, Israelite wives, and marry these pagan women and, and begin to worship the gods of their background, these false idols. And God was saying, you know, I warned you about this. This is in my law. Do not intermarry with these other groups. You're going to be enticed to worship their false gods. And you've done that. I knew these false gods would destroy you and destroy our relationship. And you've done that. And then, as he says, this other thing you do, after the fact, you come and weep and wail at the temple. God, where are you? What, you know, why aren't you helping me? And he's saying, you have broken our relationship because of how you've acted. And he's saying, you know, in, in an earthly sense, you know, you broke your marriage covenant with your Israelite wives to, and you're unfaithful to them to go marry these pagan women and worship their gods. And that's a metaphor for what you've done with me. You've abandoned me. You've been unfaithful to me. You've walked away from our relationship. God is saying, look, I didn't walk away from our relationship. You have, you have left me. And really that indicates that on some level they didn't trust him. They didn't trust God. And really when we do that, when we kind of walk away from God or pull back or say, I don't know about this with, with God, it's, it's, at some level, it's a lack of trust in who he is. It's a lack of, we don't believe he's there for us or he has the best plan for us. We wonder if he loves us. We're disillusioned and we just think it's safer. I'm just going to trust myself. I'm going to trust my judgment of things. I'm going to follow what I think is smart. You know, I'm going to kind of ask God to help me a little bit, but really I'm kind of steering the boat here. That's where we go. It's, a, it's based on a lack of trust. And that's what the Israelites we're living out. They, they, you know, in spite of all of God's provision and protection to the generations, they're sitting there going, what have you ever done for us? And God's saying, you walked away from this relationship. How can you say I don't love you? But God is not a God of cynicism or disillusionment or hopelessness. He is a God of love and of truth and of hope, and he has a plan, and he's going to begin to explain it in verse 17, Malachi 2.17. I want you to really key in and pay attention to these verses because Malachi, as we said, it's the last book of the Old Testament, and it's in these verses that the, the, the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament really gets built. You get to really see that connection between the era of the prophets and the era of Jesus, and it's amazing. So I want to dive in here. Um, Malachi two seventeen. 
God said this. He said, you've wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? And then he says this. I want you to highlight this phrase. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For, and then highlight this, he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Can you hear the uh, disillusionment in those opening words there? You've wearied the Lord with your words. And how have you done this? You know, where's the God of justice? You know, God, you're like not doing your job. (laughs) That's basically what Israel has been saying to him. You know, we thought you were the God of justice. Look at all this bad stuff happening. You're just letting people get away with it. There's all the cynicism about God. Again, sounds very modern to me when you hear what the, the arguments they're making with God. And God's reply, what I had you highlight, is, you know, I, I'm, I'm about to do something here to solve all of this. And what he's going to do is he's going to send his messenger, it says. And that messenger will pave the way for the coming of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And his role, the Lord's role, will be that of a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap, it says. Those are two different metaphors that both mean essentially the same thing. He's going to purify his people. When the Messiah comes, when the Lord comes, he's going to purify his people. The refiner's fire, it's the um, image of uh, heating up metal into a liquid state, and that purges the impurities from the metal rises to the surface and it can be cleaned off. You know, the launderer's soap, it's washing away the ugly stuff, the stain of sin, all of that, everything that separates us from God is going to be washed away. And so God is saying, I'm going to send a messenger who's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers Um, adulterers and perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord. And then highlight this incredible phrase, I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. Highlight that. And you know what? Don't just highlight it. Circle it, underline, arrows, I don't care what you have to do. Do not miss those words. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. And then highlight this. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. God is saying, despite all the ups and downs in his relationship with Israel for generations, God gives us this very simple truth. I, the Lord, do not change. I do not change. God does not change. He created us for himself. He loves us. He poured himself into us, made us in his image. That has never changed. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, when it describes God's love, it often uses this word that means steadfastness, steadfast love. God's love never changes. It's reliable. He never changes. His nature doesn't change. His love for us doesn't change. And then he gives this wonderful invitation, return to me, 
return to me. In spite of all the ways you've turned your back on me, walked away, abandoned me, come back. I want you to come back. The God who seemed so distant to them wasn't the one who moved. It was they who had moved. In fact, I was thinking about this, and, and the metaphor came to my mind. I don't know if you've ever done this. You've been in, maybe in a lake or the ocean, and you're kind of out in the water for a little while. And then you look back to the shore where you think your, like, umbrella and towel and stuff is, and you're like, where is it? Oh, it's over there. It's like you just were kind of incrementally going with the current, and you just find that you drifted. That's sort of like God saying, like, I'm in the same spot on the beach I've always been. You know, I haven't moved. I don't change. Come back. Come back. I want you to come back. That's his message to them. You know, God's prodigal son, Israel, is being called home. And he's going to make a way for them and for us to come home once and for all, and that's through himself, his his Messiah, through Jesus. And Jesus' arrival will be heralded by this messenger that Malachi is talking about, this forerunner who's going to pave the way. And so that person is going to be described a little bit more. Um, if you sk- skip over to chapter 4, we're just looking at a couple of verses here. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Um, this is this messenger figure that's going to come. It says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, and then if you're taking notes, highlight this, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And then um, just draw brackets around this or something. It's a lot to highlight, but this next section I think is really important. This Elijah figure, this messenger who's going to come, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. It's this um, idea of this... um, reconciliation is going to begin to start happening between people um, as, uh, as uh, the Messiah is about to arrive. So Malachi is saying, God's saying through Malachi, the Lord's going to come one day and he's going to be this refiner and he's going to, he's going to solve these problems, this broken relationship, and this messenger is going to come as a forerunner and he's called Elijah here. I'm going to send the prophet Elijah to you. Now, if you know your chronology, Malachi is living in the 400s. Elijah lived 400 years earlier in the 800s. So he's long gone. So that's kind of interesting to say I'm going to send Elijah to you. Um, but what it's saying is really this Elijah-like figure. This figure whose ministry mirrors Elijah's in some way is going to come, and he's going to be a precursor to the arrival of the Messiah. And that person, his ministry is going to begin to turn people's hearts to each other, to the Lord. Um, and so it's this very rich, specific prophecy. You know, God, the Lord is going to come, and he's going to do this refining work, and you'll know he's about to arrive when this ambassador, this herald, kind of starts paving the way. So this beautiful prophecy in Malachi, we see glimpses of this all through the minor prophets too, anticipating God's intervention to deal with sin. But then, after Malachi's time, silence. Nothing. For 400 years. Nothing. In fact, here's the uh, biblical chronology. The Old Testament period, generally 2000 B.C., roughly, scholars think that's when Abraham lived. Uh, through the end of the prophets, which they were kind of active in the 800s to the 400s. And then from 400 until the birth of Christ, no prophets. God is not acting observably among Israel. 
He's not, he's not manifesting in the way he did historically. There's no prophet speaking for God to the people, no new messages, no new teaching. And during that time, all kinds of upheaval. You have the Greeks coming to power and overthrowing everything, including Israel, under Alexander the Great. Then the Romans come to power. So Israel's just being taken over, taken over, taken over by all these different um, political powers. And there's no voice of God during this time, as he historically had spoken to his people. Of course, there were faithful people in Israel who presumably were praying and reading the scriptures and believed in God, but there was just this sort of deafening silence. You want to talk about disillusionment? I mean, that was a season, a 400-year season of disillusionment in, in God's people. I mean, it just seemed completely hopeless. Like, God has abandoned us. That, that was a feeling, and that's why they were just waiting and praying and hoping for the Messiah during these centuries. Many people interpreted this circumstance as God not caring about them anymore, not being involved, and they could have never dreamed that God was about to do something that would just change everything, act in the biggest way he's ever acted in actually becoming one of us. In the fullness of time, as Paul called it, God began to fulfill centuries of promises in the life of Christ. And so when you flip over from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you begin to read the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life. The opening words of those documents are saturated with language of fulfillment. This is happening. God promised it. Look, it's starting to happen. Um, And Malachi specifically is all over the opening chapters of the four Gospels. Um, I'll just give you one example. So um, some of you might be familiar with the Gospel of Luke. At the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, um, you read about John the Baptist's birth and how the angel Gabriel appears to his parents to talk about what John the Baptist's life would be like. And I want to read just a few verses. Luke 1, starting in verse 14. This is the angel Gabriel speaking to John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah. And Gabriel says this, He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Now listen to this. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The spirit of Elijah turning hearts of parents to children, preparing the way for the Lord. This is all Malachi. This is all predicted and prophesied in Malachi. John the Baptist and his ministry was that fulfilled promise. The forerunner, the herald for guess who's coming? He's almost here. Be ready. That was John's message. In fact, Jesus said explicitly in another part of the Gospels, he said, John was that Elijah figure, and he was the greatest of all the, all the prophets, John the Baptist was. And so John's ministry as the herald of Jesus' arrival was just the first drop of what would become a waterfall of fulfilled promises in the life of Christ. And so let's go back to our question from the beginning. Can God be trusted? Yes, God can be trusted because he does not change. He does not change. I'm going to talk about what I mean by that. 
He loved us from the beginning. And he still does. And despite all the doubts that Israel had about his plans, despite all the ways they turned their back on him, despite being exiled, despite 400 years of silence from God, God was at work until his perfect timing to send his son. God still loves us. He's never changed. His desires and plans for us have never changed. He was always working for our redemption. God was at work to, uh, he has promised through his son, through Jesus, to purify us, as it said in Malachi, that promise to purify us. He has promised to take the stain of our sin away, as he promised in Zechariah, to give us grace we don't deserve, as he promised in Jonah, to pursue a relationship with a spiritually adulterous people, as he promised in Hosea, to give us his personal perpetual presence as he promised in Joel and Haggai, other places. All of these promises and the prophets intersected and were fulfilled in Christ. God loves us. He does not change. He keeps his promises. He is trustworthy. I think one of the reasons we struggle to embrace this, his trustworthiness, um, is we think he's promised things he hasn't. You know, material comfort, financial prosperity, health in this lifetime, a certain standard of living or stress level. He has not promised any of that. He has promised himself. He's promised his presence. He's promised the hope of eternal life. He's promised to walk with us through all the peaks and valleys of life. It's hard to remember that, though. When, when life gets tough and we're struggling, it's hard to remember all that because we begin to hear that very familiar song telling us that the painful experiences of our life are evidence that God doesn't love us. And it's a believable lie. And so we begin thinking that. But it is a lie that God doesn't love us. It's a lie. It's a lie we tell ourselves sometimes. It's a lie our culture tells us. It's a lie Satan repeats ad nauseum. See? Look what's happening in your life. You think God loves you? He wouldn't let that happen to you if he loved you. It's a lie. God gave everything he could to prove that he loves us and how valuable we are to him. He gave everything. He himself Suffer. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if you've grown up in the church, I think this is one of those ideas that's just shocking that we just sort of get used to. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Got it. The idea that the creator of the universe, who can never be forced to do anything, chose to experience suffering. Self-imposed. <laughs> I mean, just think about that. He himself suffered for us and walks with us through our trials. And if we prayerfully turn to him and say, Lord, I want to understand you better. I want to grow closer to you. You know, help me to understand who you are. If we prayerfully turn to his word and remind ourselves of the truth of who God is as expressed in the life of Christ, we will not stumble into disillusionment or at least a lasting disillusionment. I think we all have moments of that but there won't be a sustainable disillusionment if you continually look to Christ and who he is. You can't land there because you encounter a God who radically loves you and proved it. 
you look to Jesus, you find that you discover and rediscover how valuable you are and how much you are loved. And you find that God is entirely trustworthy because he does not change and he makes promises and he fulfills his promises and he has never stopped loving us. But why is it important to trust God? Why, why is that? Why does that matter? Why do we need to trust God? I think, in part, it's because any meaningful relationship that we have with anyone is based on trust. Can you think of any person in your life you've ever had a real, meaningful, genuine friendship relationship with who you didn't trust? I can't think of any in my life. If you don't trust someone, your relationship will always be superficial. But God is trustworthy and invites us to be close to him, to loosen our grip on control or the illusion of control. So in this series, we've, we've called it God's unmistakable voice. And I think we've gotten a sense of it through looking at the minor prophets. We've gotten a sense of what God's voice sounds like. It is simultaneously loving and just, grace and truth at the same time. His voice rings with perfect clarity in a noisy and confusing and chaotic world, if we're listening for it. It's love deeper than we can imagine. Justice unwavering, promises kept. And really, you want to get a sense of what God's voice is? You look at Jesus. That's where you look. If you want to know who God is, because Jesus is God's unmistakable voice. That's who he is. God's word made flesh, as John put it. Jesus is God's closing argument to the world about who he is. His ultimate statement of what he's like. Thirty years after Jesus' life, the writer of Hebrews put it this way at the beginning of uh, the book of Hebrews. He said this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the exact representation of God. To know Jesus is to know God. In fact, Jesus said it this way, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know about God? You want to know what his voice is? You want to know what he thinks? You look at Christ. God's ultimate statement to us of who he is and what he thinks of us and what our purpose is. It's Christ. And in a few weeks on um, Sunday, September 9th, so this is the Sunday after Labor Day weekend, uh, we're going to kick off our fall series um, entitled Jesus in His Own Words. And what we're going to try to do is hear what it would have sounded like to listen when God himself became one of us and walked around and spoke. What was that like? And we're going to look at his parables and his teachings and try to really hear Jesus' words in a fresh way. I know God's going to speak powerfully to us as we seek to grow closer to him and join him in his mission to transform lives. 